You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. I've had a lot of people ask me if they should use their savings to buy a primary residence or a rental property. And as usual, my answer is, well, that depends. And in this case, that answer might be, why not do both? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. At our last Real Wealth Network event, a young couple came up to me and told me they'd saved $200,000 to buy a home. I was totally impressed because it's really hard to save money like that these days. So good on them. I hope you're listening. And then I asked them if they'd started shopping for the home that they want to buy and if they could afford the home that they'd want to stay in for a long time. They said, no, it would probably just be a starter home, maybe just a condo, definitely not their dream home. So here's my response to that. If you're in a high-priced market like California, and they are, they're in the Los Angeles area, and if you're going to live in the home for a long time and raise your family there because of the schools or the community, or you think you're going to work there for a long time, maybe your family's there, it will probably work out in the end, especially if you can afford the payments and it's not much more than rent would be. In fact, maybe it would be a little cheaper to rent, but with the tax benefits of owning a home, maybe it comes out even. It's also important to keep in mind that over time, If you do stay a renter, rents will continue to go up. But if you have a mortgage, that stays fixed for 30 years. So those are really the benefits of buying a home. But you have to stay there long term for it to make sense. If you're just going to live there as a starter home and try to sell it in a couple of years because you've outgrown it, you might find yourself at a bad time in the market where you can't sell it for what you paid for. Remember, we are at the top of the market for sure in LA and San Francisco. So if you think you're going to sell your property for more in a couple of years, you might not be able to. But if you wanted to move up and just rent that house out, find out what rents might be. And if rents would cover your mortgage, that could be a great plan too. What's really interesting about that is if you live in your primary residence for two years and rent it out for three, so if you lived in it for two out of the last five years, then you could sell that property and get up to $500,000 of the gain tax-free. So again, that could be a pretty good plan. I don't really see prices going up that much over the next five years, but you never know. Like I said, at least not in high-priced markets. However, what if instead of using that $200,000 for a down payment, what if you just put 3% down, which you can do on a primary residence, and then you could use the rest of the money, the other 17% of the down payment you have saved, and buy rental property. You could use the cash flow from the rental property to offset the difference in the rate and maybe the mortgage insurance you have to pay, but you'd be building a bigger portfolio this way. Because if you're really trying to grow your real estate empire, you got to have more than one property. So using leverage to buy as many as you can, that obviously makes sense, it could be a really good idea. So in today's show, we're going to look at some different scenarios of putting less money down on a primary residence, locking in that lower rate and using other money to invest in investment property. Lindsay Johnson is president of U.S. Mortgage Insurers, and we'll take a deep dive into mortgages and home financing options. And we'll take a broader look on housing public policy in general and its ramifications on home buyers and investors. So Lindsay, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thank you for having me, Kathy. I'm excited to be on, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about mortgage insurance and what it is. Absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, mortgage insurance is really there for borrowers who are unable to put a down payment of 20%. These borrowers are typically viewed by lenders as higher risk. 
And so private mortgage insurance enables the borrowers to qualify for a conventional loan by ensuring that the lender was not going to have to eat that loss in the event that the borrower can't repay the loan and there's not sufficient equity in the home to cover the amount that's owed. So we've existed for 60 years, and in that six-decade period, we've helped more than 30 million individuals become homeowners sooner than they otherwise would be able to. You know, and there's a lot of talk that people say, oh, you know, it's dangerous to have low down payment loans. We could have another housing crisis. But what's not discussed so much in that discussion is that there's almost always mortgage insurance, right, if a 20% down payment is not made. That's exactly right. I mean, yes, there is higher risk when you compare someone who's putting less than 20% down to somebody who's got a full 20% down payment. However, that's the reason that mortgage insurance exists. And we've existed, we're not some fly-by-night industry, we've existed for more than 60 years. And as I mentioned, help more than 30 million people get homeownership sooner than they could otherwise could. And if you think about the financial crisis, sort of the you know ultimate test of the industry, we paid more than 50 billion in claims. Those are claims that otherwise would have been paid by you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and ultimately the taxpayer. So we played an incredibly important role during the financial crisis. And just on a day-in, day-out basis, we're there protecting lenders and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the event of a default. Yeah, I, that, it's amazing that you guys are still in business after the last crisis. I would think that that would have been a pretty hard hit. It was a crazy time for everybody. Absolutely. But, you know, I really is a testament to the strength of the industry. This is a a highly capitalized, very well-regulated industry that, you know, really understands and has expertise and experience managing mortgage credit risk. And that is, it's long tail risk. So it's, you know, a different form of risk than many other types of risks that are out there. So that's why they're very specialized companies that do this. Well, what kind of buyer can get a low down payment mortgage and get the mortgage insurance? I mean, is it just residential or can you do it for investment property? So just residential. And we think one of the most important things that sort of we've been trying to educate folks, and I know a lot of your listeners are more sophisticated, but one thing that we found is that, you know, even some of the key stakeholders within the mortgage finance system don't truly understand mortgage insurance and don't understand the different low down payment options that are available. Consumers definitely don't. We are continually surprised. And in fact, you know, all of my member companies are, you know, disappointed when they hear on a day in and day out basis, consumer sites, one of the number one obstacles and reasons that they're staying on the sidelines and not purchasing is they don't have enough for a down payment and closing costs. Um, in fact, there's just a report released this summer by Freddie Mac that said nearly half of all non-homeowners state not having enough money for the 20% down payment and closing costs was their number one obstacle to purchasing a home. But then when you look at the data behind those aspiring homeowners, you can see that they've got the resources and they're absolutely ready, you know, home ready. Mm. And what's really amazing is that once an individual kind of comes in and actually takes that step, and many of them are staying on the sidelines, but once they take that step and actually meet with a, you know, a professional, that more than 80% of individuals who obtained a home mortgage for the first time this past year had down payments of less than 20%. So it's not just something that a few individuals are doing. This is a prevalent thing within the mortgage finance system. And again, our big push as USMI is just to make sure that individuals are aware of those down payment options available to them. You've got private mortgage insurance, and obviously we're in the conventional space, and you can get a mortgage with as little as 3% down. 
You've also got FHA or Federal Housing Administration loan. That's a government-backed loan. And those loans go, you know, you can get a loan with as little as 3.5% down. So again, just knowing your options and understanding sort of what's available to the consumer and making sure as a professional in this space that we're sharing and, and providing consumers with the right resources and tools is absolutely critically important. I agree. I, I am always shocked when I tell people that they, you know, they can buy a home with 3% down and they're like, what? You know, they, they have no idea. So yeah. I guess we have more work to do to get the news out. Because it's not, obviously, as you said, it's not new news. There's just a stigma or a belief that you have to have that 20% down payment or that it's dangerous to buy a house if you yeah. don't have that, which again, I disagree with. What I think is more important than how much you put down is your ability to make the payment. So, you know, in the past, in 2006, people were getting approved for payments that they actually couldn't afford, but that's not the case now. So even if you put 20% down and couldn't afford the payment ongoing, you'd find yourself in trouble. Whereas today, it seems like, especially in the kind of where I live in the Southern California area, believe it or not, rents are so high right now that it's actually cheaper to own in some areas. Absolutely. So what's amazing to me, I I vividly remember my dad kind of drilling it in my head that before I ever even thought about walking into a lender's office, I better have 20% down, I better have a perfect credit score, need to have this sort of laundry list. And it was extremely intimidating. And really, as I worked in this profession and sort of worked in the policy area in this profession, even it took me a while even then to understand sort of what really is required. And consumers need to know that to your point, it's not always best, not always even most prudent to save for the full 20% down. So it's when I explain this to people, I love to use this example that one of my member companies walked me through. I think it's so powerful. If you have someone, and I always like to use an example. So if you have someone named Tracy that's saving for a 20% down payment on a $200,000 house, and let's say she saved for $10,000, she has got $10,000 in the bank, and she re- she's required to have $40,000 if she was going to save for that 20% down payment. Let's just assume that, you know, because the national savings rate, we, we can do a little bit of this analysis and decide that she can save $500 that she would put into savings each month. That's $6,000 a year. But what she should know is that she could buy a house with as little as 3% down, and that's $6,000 compared to $40,000. And most people are putting between 5 and 7% down on their mortgage. So if you're putting 5% on a $200,000 house, that's $10,000. That's a $30,000 savings over that 20% down. But what we really try to educate folks about in terms of sort of they're looking at this for their long-term financial well-being is if she waited to put that full $40,000 down for that 20% down payment, you know, she absolutely would miss out on some appreciation. And if you think about home prices appreciating at roughly 3% annually, and that number does fluctuate, of course, depending on where she lives in the country, obviously things can change over time, but her future 20% down payment would need to be $48,000, actually more than $48,000, if she were going to save for that 20% down payment and based on that 3% appreciation annually. So it's going to take her, you know, six more years to save. So during that time, she would have paid more than 80000 in rent, and her home equity position would have been more than $72,000 had she bought six years ago. So just, you know, again, this is a, a pretty simple example, but 
as we walk folks through it and we say, you know, look at your savings rate, look at what you're able to put into savings and understand sort of how long that's going to take you to save for that 20% down. And does it make more sense for you to hang on to some of that savings so that you, to your point earlier, are sure that if you hit, you know, some bump of the road that you're able to cover that through savings and not, you know, miss yeah. the mortgage payment. Oh my gosh. I tell that to people all the time, you know, and I have family members who saved, they tried to put 30 or 40% down. I said, no, 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 because they wanted the lower payment. And I thought you're in a much more secure position if you put less down and hold the difference in savings or in a short-term investment so that if you need the money, if you ever run into hard times or medical issues, you've got something to help you make that right. payment versus now it's all in the in the home equity and you can't get it out as easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having that prudent savings and being able to use it for things like renovations or appliances or furniture or medical expenses that you just weren't expecting, those are just as important as making sure that you, you know, are able to make that monthly payment. So just making sure that you've kind of looked at all those different options and considered it from those different angles is really important. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay. So one problem today with first-time home buyers is many of them are millennials. And we've all heard that millennials do like to travel or move. They're not necessarily interested in settling down in one place for the rest of their life. So if a millennial, a first-time home buyer in their early 30s, say, does take advantage of a low down payment and mortgage insurance, but they have to move in, say, two years, can they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's nothing that is really, you know, special about mortgage insurance that would tie an individual down. It is as seamless to the mortgage process as when you go in and you purchase your mortgage. So when you go in and you don't have the full 20% down payment, you will be required to have mortgage insurance, either through FHA or through private mortgage insurance. And it's typically built into your monthly payment. And so whenever that individual goes to sell their home, that would be the same process as if they didn't have mortgage insurance. Absolutely. If they want to keep the house because they have to go away just for a year or two, can they rent it out during that time? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, as, as long as they're able to, um, you know, cover their rent, and obviously that would be important no matter what, they definitely can rent their house out. Absolutely. Okay. So all you millennials listen in here, <laughs> this is such important information. You know, people listen to the show because they know they can build wealth through real estate, but often feel like they can't get that first property. And the, you know, the point is you can, you don't have to live in the property forever. So if you're worried that your job might transfer you or uh, you might lose your job and, and have to work somewhere else, you don't want to be locked down, you're not locked down. It's a way for you to get into a property with a low down payment, 3%, you do pay more because there's mortgage insurance, but if you check what the local rents are, such that if you are in a position where you have to leave and might have to rent that house out, but the rent still covers the mortgage payment and the mortgage insurance, you know, it's definitely something to consider. It's exactly how my daughter got into her first property. It was a 3% down type loan, and she did end up moving closer to me and has that property rented for quite a lot of cash flow. Well, and you said something a moment ago that really I want to emphasize. The other amazing thing with mortgage insurance is that your payments over time can go down because after an individual has built up enough equity in their home, usually it's 
mortgage insurance goes away and the payments related to mortgage insurance go away. So that's not true for FHA loans, but for private mortgage insurance loans, we are canceled at 20%. It's required and the payments go away. So over time, borrowers typically love the fact that you know they, they're going to see their payments actually go down. And on average, that's between five and seven years. So a lot of individuals really see this as a short-term solution to making sure that they've got longer-term wealth prospects in the future. Now, I had heard that there was talk that FHA might change its guidelines on that for so many people who now do have more than 20% equity, even maybe 30 or 40% equity, and they're still paying that mortgage insurance. Do you see any movement there where potentially FHA loans might be able to drop the mortgage insurance? We don't see anything yet. And there has you know, consistently kind of talk about that issue. One of the differences between private mortgage insurance and FHA insurance, and the reason that PMI cancels, is because the insurance actually goes away. But for FHA insurance, the insurance never goes away. So even if you were to say, quote unquote, cancel the insurance payments, the insurance is still there. And I have a hard time thinking that the federal government wants to be exposed to that additional risk and continue to sort of back those loans if they're not going to get the steady you know, income or premiums from those loans. So we hear the same talk, but I don't see anything happening anytime soon. Okay. Well, too bad for all the people who are paying a lot more, but at least you got the home equity, right? Absolutely. <laughs> or you can refi, right? Get out of that FHA loan. Yeah. That's right. Good time to refi. Absolutely. Okay. So where can somebody find a 3% down loan that's not FHA? So again, this is a, that's a great question and it all depends on the individual's credit profile, but when you go in and, you, and for lenders and brokers and you know mortgage bankers, these are really important options to know. Many, if not you know, most, know about these. But understanding that Fannie and Freddie have these approved programs now that offer as little as 3% down and talking to your loan officer and doing that math. I mean, we encourage, we actually put information out there all the time about do the math, really look at what your savings would be you know, if you were putting 5% down versus 10% and even 3% down versus 10%. And, you know, in the longer term, does that make sense? But um, all lenders should be, you know, apprised of these different loan offerings because they are sort of standard through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who are the GSEs that offer these different guideline programs. So we think that, you know, just making sure that as an individual walks in, that it's not sort of set in stone, this is what I'm going to do. Have that conversation with them, make sure that they really understand the different options and have considered sort of the different impacts on not just their payments, but sort of the longer term uh, financial picture. And do you think it's better to go to a mortgage broker or just walk into your local bank? I think either one. I mean, obviously, I think there's going to be some distinctions in terms of maybe how the information is presented. And a bank's got, you know, a very, uh, usually has a very set set of guidelines that they're going to follow. Mortgage brokers oftentimes are going to be shopping around, and so they're going to see some of the different, maybe even you know, more options available to for a consumer based on their credit profile. And so I think either option is great, but going in as a consumer and knowing sort of just a baseline of information that will help you be prepared for that conversation will be extremely helpful. Because when that broker or when that banker presents to you, here's sort of what we're looking at, 
you can ask those questions. Well, what about a 5% down? What if I had 3% down? Uh, I think those are sort of the key things that you want to, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing as a consumer. And obviously, as a professional, you want to make sure that you're giving your consumer the best option for them. Yeah, I personally recommend going with a broker, especially if you're just wanting to find out how much you can qualify for and what loan options are out there. They're going to have a lot more insight because that's what they do. They broker it. They have access to a lot of different banks. Rich and I just thought, oh, let's just go to our local bank where we do all our banking. They know everything about us. They know how much money's in our accounts. We're, you know, the platinum level or whatever. And thought this will be easy. It was so hard. <laughs> oh my gosh, it took months. And finally, we just walked. Uh, so yeah, I think the local bank could definitely be more difficult. And I don't want anyone to get discouraged. So maybe just talk to both. Uh, definitely talk to a broker because they will have access to more options. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, why this industry can be so complicated kind of mystifies me, but it is complicated. I think part of our responsibility is connecting those dots and bridging those divides. And so, you know, this is, and we are a B2B industry, but part of the, you know, rationale for USMI being so engaged in this conversation is because we do see how complicated it is. And we do see not just the lack of information, but the misinformation that's out there. And so making sure that, you know, consumers know where to go to get this information and giving them their options and making sure that we break it down as, you know, into the most digestible piece components for them, I think is absolutely where we need to all be trying to go. Mm, Excellent. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you being here and giving some insight to our listeners. This uh, could be the light bulb moment for some people who are just not quite sure how to get in that first property. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you for having me on and we appreciate everything that you guys are doing here. Thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwealthshow.com. And if you need referrals to great lenders, real estate brokers, insurance companies, title companies, just go to realwealthshow.com and click on the resources tab and you'll see a drop down there for real estate professionals that have been highly recommended by members from Real Wealth Network. Have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.